Hello everyone, Justin Vakula here with another episode in my Stoic Philosophy series. Today's episode is titled The Benefits of Philosophy with Dr. David Kyle Johnson. Visit my website at justinvakula.com where you can find links to my social portals including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and see past Stoic Philosophy content on YouTube, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. My Stoic Philosophy series explores the philosophical tradition of Stoicism with goals to inform, empower, and help others benefit from the practical wisdom of ancient Greek, Roman, and modern thinkers including Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and Seneca. For the Stoics, a main focus is pursuing virtue to attain a well-examined life through practical applications of philosophy, acting with good character, using reason to form accurate careful judgments about the world, and achieving contentment. Stoic writers focus on many perennial human concerns and urge people to take action, applying what they learn to everyday life. Self-improvement is central to Stoic thought, strengthening and improving one's mindset. Dr. David Kyle Johnson is an associate professor of philosophy at King's College in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, and is also a professor for The Great Courses. His courses include Exploring Metaphysics and the Big Questions of Philosophy. In addition to being the author of The Myths That Stole Christmas, he also blogs for Psychology Today, has written and edited extensively for Wiley Blackwell's Philosophy and Pop Culture series, and has published work in journals such as Religious Studies, Sophia, Philo, Think, and Science, Religion, and Culture regarding metaphysics and philosophy of religion. Let's move on to our conversation. All right. Thank you for joining me for a conversation today. Yeah, thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here. Can you talk a little bit about your background, why you were drawn to study philosophy and then to teach? A lot of people ask me about this, especially given that I teach at a Catholic college, and I'm also an atheist, and so sometimes that is a a strange combination Mm -hmm. uh, for them. But it actually speaks to my background a bit as well, because my background is kind of another conundrum in that that mix. uh, My background is highly evangelical. So I grew up in a very evangelical church in a very evangelical community, doing things like Bible quizzing, that kind of stuff. But uh, I also did uh, speech and debate and was good at arguments and that kind of stuff. Uh, And so I actually, going into college, fancied myself to becoming a preacher and so I went uh-huh. to a religious school in the South uh, with the intentions of actually becoming a, a pastor. I even worked in churches and that kind of stuff. But uh, kind of two things happened right around this, right around the same time. The reason I thought that uh, I wanted to be a pastor is because I like to preach. I did a few sermons as a as a high schooler and that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, and I thought, and I was, and I was pretty good at public speaking, so I thought that that would all uh, go together pretty well. But I first I learned through working with the church that that's not at all what a pastor does. Like pastors, unless you're heading up a like you know, unless you're a Joel Olstein or something like that, you're not <laughs> like you're not actually pre- like you preach once a week. But that's not the majority of what you do. It's like one percent of what you do, and the rest of what you do is all working with people and that kind of stuff. And I'm not very good at that. And then the second thing that happened to me is I took a philosophy class. I think it was my third semester, it'd be my beginning of my sophomore year. I took introduction to philosophy. And within like the first two or three classes, I was like, oh, no, this is what I want to do. I want to do what this guy's doing. Oh, I want to wow. talk about like, this is like, I mean, this is what, what he is doing is what I envision preaching to be essentially, right? Like exploring kind of deep issues and talking about it and, and you know, and he was talking about all the kinds of things that I wanted to talk about and that kind of stuff. And so it was just like, oh, no, this is what, what I want to do with, what, with my life. And so I very quickly actually didn't change majors. I was still a religion major. I just changed it from like a religion or theology concentration to a philosophy concentration. So I still have a religion degree as an undergrad from a mm-hmm. you know, Southern Evangelical uh, College. That's what drew me to, to philosophy and then like the desire. Oh, wow. So that, that was a big draw right in the intro course that you felt, oh, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to talk about these issues and examine these further. Whereas that it wasn't a draw in maybe other classes that you had. It was specifically the intro to philosophy course. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I, the Bible studies class, I had taken Bible studies class and stuff, and it was you know somewhat interesting, but it wasn't. I wasn't that into that. I hadn't had a theology class yet at that point, but once I took theology, it didn't have that that kind of draw. It was the topics. It was the logic. It was the way that the arguments were being done. It was the willingness to challenge favored beliefs and things that I'd always thought was true and that kind of stuff. Interestingly, maybe no one else finds this interesting, but I do. Uh, <laughs> We'll see. One of the one of the first things that we talked about was the freedom foreknowledge problem, and we talked about the kind of classic version of it and the different ways of understanding it and that kind of stuff. And as a sophomore, I looked at that and said, "That's that's not right. That's not the right way to understand that problem. I think it's a problem, but they're not they're not really getting at the heart of what the issue is." And so I continued to study it, and I ended up defending in my dissertation essentially the take I had on it that I thought it was a problem of. Uh, temporal ontology essentially no one was kind of recognizing it that as such so that's my dissertation that was my first major publication was understanding uh-huh. the freedom for knowledge problem in that way so right so for listeners is the idea if, if god is this tri omni being that that's not compatible with human free will that's right right and more specifically like the the part of god's tri omniness is his foreknowledge god cannot right. be God cannot know the future before it's going to happen and specifically know what you're going to do before you do it and then you be able to do that freely. Uh-huh. So you had these ideas from earlier years, from going to college about belief in God and philosophy started to challenge that and you started thinking deeply about these issues. Yes, and, and it took about Basically, what philosophy did is it just kind of slowly chipped away at one thing at a time over my my 10 years of study. I mean, I studied philosophy as a student. I studied philosophy for, for 10 years, and it took about uh, about 12 years, I guess, something around that for philosophy to finally kind of chip away at, at, at all of my religious beliefs until literally nothing was left. It started out with kind of, you know, what you might think are mundane things like the Trinity and the Holy Ghost and that kind of stuff, and thinking that those kinds of things were, were off. And then there's some other you know, uh, moral or ethical beliefs that I didn't quite think cohered with rationality that are the case in Christianity. Sacrificial atonement was one big thing early on for me. I wrote a paper. Uh, one of my big transformative uh, semesters as an undergrad was the, the, the semester I took philosophy of religion mm-hmm. and inter- an introduction to New Testament theology in the same semester. And those were extremely transformative. Uh, I wrote papers in both classes, essentially on the idea that Jesus's death can serve as a sacrifice for sin and essentially I argued against it in both classes that it doesn't kind of hold water biblically um, at least in a lot of places where people th- argue it does and it certainly doesn't hold water philosophically um, it's just inconsistent with like if you, if you even if you believe in God it's inconsistent to think that he would need to sacrifice someone to be able, enable him to forgive your sins or something like that. I wrote that I wrote that paper for New Testament theology and got a perfect grade I might add uh, <laughs> but it was that was a very transformative semester and it was that kind of thing as I continued to study philosophy that just kind of whittled away at religious beliefs uh, one at a time. Right. And eventually you, you went on to teach. You continued pursuing philosophy and now you're a professor at King's College. Yeah, which I've been doing that for 10 years now. So Right. So philosophy was a major life change in your focus and your career and many other things. What about some of the practical benefits of studying philosophy? Why do you think that that should be important? Maybe some of the, some of the things considering mindset or certain things that have helped you live a better life. Yeah, so I mean, we we might not even say that uh, it was a it was a change for me. Uh, I may have always been a philosopher and just not never realized it. When we think of that, like it was really an approach to life. So if you're talking about like the practical benefits of of studying philosophy, it is a kind of approach to life that one can enact, or yeah, that one can enact, or that one can take part in without even realizing that philosophy is what they're doing. I think this was true of myself before I took my first philosophy class. I'd always been a philosopher. I just didn't realize what philosophy was. I mean. 
mean, if you talk about practical benefits, I mean, there's a number of different ways of, 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 of answering that. I mean, because it is an approach to life, it makes you take a different view of what life is and what's important in life and, and even how to approach life that can make your life extremely better. Let, let me give you an example. Another one for my undergrad years. I'm talking a lot, a lot about my undergrad years here. Logic. When I took logic as an undergrad, it did change my life. It gave a clarity and precision to my thought that I never even had envisioned, much less thought was possible or anything like that. And it changed the way I looked at the world. It changed the way I understood people. It changed the way I communicated with people. It changed the way I wrote. It changed the way I spoke. It changed the way I, maybe I already said this, evaluated other people's statements and arguments. It changed the way I approached projects. It made me better at almost everything else that I did mm-hmm. uh, because I had this kind of systematic way of thinking and approaching it. And so, I mean, you talk about practical benefit. I mean, that it, it made me a better person in numerous, numerous ways. And so, it can do that to any of studying philosophy essentially gives you logical reasoning skills and reading skills that can affect you anyone in in the same way if you take it seriously and you do it right i mean i have i have a better chance of being successful at pretty much anything that i do not that i would you know succeed at everything but i have a better chance of being successful in anything that i do because uh, i've studied philosophy and i have those kinds of skills that, that that philosophical study gives you i see so a lot of transferable skills and just being able to think clearly and analyze arguments for a position how to go about and take a fruitful approach to things then so i'm paraphrasing uh someone by the name of emmanuel pascal gobry uh who i used in the first lecture of my my big questions of philosophy course for the great courses where he essentially argues that philosophy is the bedrock of society all there was to study originally was philosophy like in the ancient world if you studied anything if you were just concerned with truth or wisdom that that's what philosophy is is the love of wisdom you are a philosopher Every discipline that has preceded that has come out of philosophy. It's some kind of offshoot of philosophy, whether it be medicine or math or science or whatever it is, it comes out of philosophy. Society runs on philosophy. Society runs on the kind of reason and ability to evaluate arguments and ability to reason through and discover the way the world is. Society runs on that. And to the extent, the more you understand philosophy, the more you kind of understand how society works and what the under pendings of society. He likens the fact that people do not study philosophy or understand philosophy anymore with a sci-fi analogy. It's like philosophy is this giant computer that makes our society works and then everyone's forgotten how the computer works. (laughs) <laughs> and so if the computer breaks down, they're stuck. They can't do anything. Their entire society can't function because no one knows how to fix it, right? They have to wait for Captain Kirk or Captain Picard to come in and, you know, show them the right whatever, right, right. right? So we do. We run on philosophy, but so many people do not understand how philosophy works or what philosophy is or how to do it properly that we end up with a broken society in a lot of ways because of that. Right. On the matter of philosophy being a guide, it's a quote from Seneca here. It molds and constructs the soul. It orders our life, guides our conduct, shows us what we should do and what we should leave undone. It sits at the helm and directs our course as we waver amid uncertainties. Without it, no one can live fearlessly or in peace of mind. Countless things that happen every hour call for advice, and such advice is to be sought in philosophy. 
Yeah, and I think that you can apply that quote. I think he means for that quote to be applied on the personal level, like philosophy can direct your life in that kind of way. But right. I think it's also true for society in general, that if society took a more philosophical approach to, and the government took a more philosophical approach to problems and the way to, to progress and what laws to pass and that kind of stuff, you wouldn't have the kind of problems that we often have. Right, whereas a lot of discussions, it seems that people are quite polarized in their opinions, that they're not looking for feedback, they're not looking to analyze the arguments that things are maybe just taken as a given, they're heated discussions, and oh, let's root for our team, and oh, this seems popular, it feels good, so let's kind of go with this. No, not always such reflective thinking, right? Yeah, and like one of the big things that like a philosopher, what, something that I often, I often say about philosophy is that to be a philosopher, you have to be in love with being wrong. You have to delight in the fact, be delighted whenever you figure out or find out that you were wrong about something. One of my favorite experiences is realizing that something I've believed for years and years and years and years was just an urban legend or a myth or something that was, you know, that I never bothered to check out, but always thought was true, was just obviously true. And then it turns out it's not rooting in it rooted in anything that's true. And it's actually completely false. I, I love discovering those kinds of things. Right. right. I, I could kind of rush because it gets me closer to the truth. Right. A mark of progress. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And like clearly people often in government and that kind of stuff are not like they're not even interested in considering alternative evidence or considering the possibility that they might be wrong. They should be. If they're taking a philosophical approach, they would be. Philosophy has a reputation as being lofty, academic, or applicable only to those within the university. What's your response to that? Yeah, it's an unfortunate consequence, and unfortunately, it's not always inaccurate. So here's a, here's a good example. A while back, I was summarizing for a collection on the presidential addresses by the APA, the APA is the American Philosophical Association, and it was astounding how many of them were just purely on philosophy of language. And it was just matters of trying to figure out how to parse out meaning, lots of predicate calculus and that kind of stuff. And then at one point, I forget who it was, I'd have to look back. At one point, one of the presidents basically came in and said, look, I mean, this is the 60s, right? It's like, we're worried about nuclear annihilation, right? Like the world is facing a major crisis. Mm -hmm. And the world's philosophers or American philosophers are, are spending their time trying to decode what the meaning of is is. <laughs> like there's there's so much more important things that we could be talking about and engaged in and we should be we should be concerned with those kinds of things and and it's not like there's not any importance to these other kind of philosophical matters but we need to be more we need to have more relevance we need to be talking about more important matters and I think that in general philosophy has moved in that direction to, to some degree philosophers can, can become too specializing it bogged down in problems that don't ultimately matter all that much uh, another way that it, another reason it can appear this way is because and this happens with any discipline. There's an entire vocabulary that you have to learn if you're doing philosophy professionally and you understand what its words mean and that kind of stuff. And then you forget that people outside that circle don't understand those words. And so you can try to articulate an argument or something that's really, really important and no one will be able to understand you because you're using a vocabulary that they're just not familiar with. It's not more advanced. It's just specialized, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is actually why I think that philosophy, I think, is moving in the direction of being more applicable, not so lofty, not so just for people in academia, is through the pop culture and philosophy stuff. Yeah, like, I mean, I work on this obviously a lot. There's a bunch of different projects that are out there. Some of it's the study of pop culture, but other, uh, other parts of it is like trying to use pop culture to bring philosophy to the masses. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you have to do when you write for the series, like when you write for uh, Irwin's uh, series through Wiley and Blackwell, the pop culture and philosophy series, learn to write in a way and communicate in a way that does not involve language from that circle. You have to be able to make 
your writing publicly digestible where people outside of the you know outside of the academy can understand it right and learning to do that has benefited me immensely because it i mean i can actually teach better because i can communicate with my my students better uh because i can do that but it also is so much more beneficial because so many more people will read an article that i write for one of the pop culture books than would ever than would ever read one of the articles uh that i write for a journal right for an academic professional journal and so it's and it's about important matters it's about matters that are not only people care about but that are like important right and even we had the inception and in philosophy book and that was a very popular movie and there was a lot of themes within that that you wrote about and talked about even with uh, authors at google and people are really interested in this they they were wanting more right Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that was a very fun talk to give at Google. I started, they, Google's a very interesting place. I gave the talk in a hallway, essentially. They don't have like closed off um, conference rooms. They have, they widen out their hallways and put chairs in them and put projectors and stuff. And so when people are on their way to something and they see something interesting, they can just sit down and listen. And I started off with just a few people at the very beginning. And by the end, it was, uh, it was almost full. Uh, and they were clearly interested in it. And they were, you know, clearly uh, fascinated by the book and, and had a new appreciation for philosophy at the end. That's the kind of thing more philosophers should be doing. And and I think it's the kind of thing that more philosophers actually are doing. Right. And one of the themes you talked about was placing faith or trust in something. Can you talk about that a little bit here? I mean, a leap of faith is one of the uh, uh, big themes in, in Inception. I didn't actually talk about this at Google, but it does it does come up in the in the book and in, in one of the chapters that I actually co-wrote for the book. The book is edited by me, so it's got multiple authors, but mm-hmm. a couple of the chapters are written by me or co-written by me. Yeah, so faith is a tricky thing. Faith is um, often suggested to be a virtue, but faith is by definition, at least the definition that most philosophers work with, it's belief without evidence. And in most cases, like outside of religious circles, you would never consider that virtuous to believe something without evidence, right? I mean, uh, you could just come up with extreme examples, right? Like, I believe there's a tiger in the living room. Do you have any evidence of this? No, but I'm just going to believe it anyway. That's not that's not virtuous. That's not right. admirable. That's just dumb, right? Uh, or someone who refuses to change their mind whenever presented with evidence to the contrary. The example I give in the book is uh, somebody who insists Matt Damon played Dom Cobb in Inception instead of Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Because <laughs> obviously they're, they're sometimes confused and you can show them all the evidence, you can show them interviews, you can show them the credits. And if someone just continued to believe, yeah, I don't care about the evidence, I'm just going to believe what I want. Well, that, they're having faith, they're believing without evidence. In that case, they're actually believing despite evidence to the contrary. But that's not virtuous, right? And so that's one of the things I, you know, I try to use in the book to try to explore that notion it's like so what exactly is faith it seems it's it's you know have defined it there it doesn't seem to usually be virtuous so why do people say it's virtuous in certain circumstances is it really virtuous in certain circumstances and essentially the argument is no there's a couple of exceptions but they have to do with really mundane things like ultimately i argue that believing that the future will resemble the past is because of the problem of induction is a matter of faith right but there's nothing wrong with that like that's literally unavoidable you can't live your life without <laughs> assuming that the future will <laughs> resemble the past and so there's nothing immoral about that and and so we can once we have that example we can look and see if anything else classifies but that that's the kind of thing i talk about like of uh trying to make like clearly that's an important issue faith is a very important issue faith affects people's lives on a daily basis and so clearly this is an issue of importance and so trying by trying to bring a discussion about faith into the public audience uh into the public sphere you know trying to do good trying to bring philosophy to the masses in a way that uh, you know makes your life better Right. So it's it's looking for reason, rationality, critical thinking, having 
say, a skeptical mind about things, not just accepting what we hear, not just going with it. It's uh, a qu another quote from Seneca here. He says, put yourself under the control of reason. If reason becomes your ruler, you will become ruler over many. You will learn from her what you would undertake and how it shall be done. You will not blunder into things. Yeah, and one of the other quotes that you shared with me along that line, see if I can find it, uh, no man can live a happy life or even a supportable life without the study of wisdom. Right, right. Right, so like I'm bringing the issue, I mean, it's very like very much like Socrates, you know, the examined life is not worth living, right? Mm -hmm. and so not only am I suggesting that you approach life with reason, but that you should use that reason to think about the important things, the nature of faith and when it's rational to have faith or when it's not, um, what you should have faith in and what you shouldn't, that kind of stuff, right? That's part of the part of what makes life worth living. It's part of what leads to eudaimonia, the best kind of life. Right. And uh, so it's not only reason, but it's reasoning about the right things, reasoning about the worthwhile things, I guess we might say. Right. And, and even within Stoicism, it goes on a more personal level of how to deal with anxiety, how to deal with right. death, how to deal with change. A lot of these things in philosophy can certainly help us there to have a better mindset about things to be more content absolutely those are the big questions essentially that that you know you should be using philosophy to think about those part those are the parts of your life that you should be examining to make it worthwhile right although we hear some naysayers they'll say oh well ignorance is bliss yeah i would say that that's bs but ignorance certainly is not bliss so like believing what you want because you want to might in certain circumstances lead to a momentary good feeling but it's not that's not truly bliss uh it's not true happiness it's certainly not eudaimonia the kind the best kind of life anyone who is willfully ignorant from the outside is not in a state of bliss from the outside they're pitied think about a 20-year-old who still believed in Santa Claus. When Christmas time came around, they really did believe that Santa was coming down the chimney and delivering the presents and blah, 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 blah. They, they might have a really happy Christmas. They might enjoy their Christmas more than you do, right? Because they believe in Santa Claus. But we wouldn't call that bliss. That kind of happiness that they're getting is not a kind of happiness that's really worth pursuing. And certainly, like, you know, from an objective standpoint, when you look out and you, you know, you know, Santa Claus doesn't exist and this perfect person's kind of willfully ignorant, believing that he does exist, you, you don't, you wouldn't want to be like that. You wouldn't say, well, I wish I could forget there was a Santa Claus so I could be that happy at Christmas mm -hmm. time. Right? Like you, you look at that and say that that's, that's that's pitiful. It's a pitiful situation to be in, to be 20 years old and still that ignorant, to be 20 years old and still that be that clueless about the way the world is. Ignorance is not bliss. There is an intrinsic there's an intrinsic value to having true belief and understanding the way the world is, even if it makes you a little bit uncomfortable, even if what you end up believing is not what you want to believe. There's still intrinsic value to that that I think overrides those kind of momentary fleeting kinds of happiness. Right. And on the Christmas issue, you recently published a book in which you're talking about the traditions. And it seems that through, through more knowledge of where these things come from, we can better appreciate them. Isn't that right? Yeah. Like, so, so the Christmas book, The Myth That Sold Christmas is, I mean, really engaged in trying to understand where the traditions come from and that kind of stuff. And then also settle some other matters about like the war on Christmas and Christmas mm -hmm. spending and whether right. lying to our kids about Santa is a good idea. Spoiler alert, it's not. <laughs> uh, but like it, in understanding it, like for me, understanding it led to a greater appreciation of Christmas. Understanding where the traditions come from can enrich that tradition. 
can enrich that participation in that tradition because you better understand what you're doing. But also understanding where the tradition comes from can free you from that tradition. A lot of the traditions that we have, and this is especially true at Christmas time, a lot of Christmas traditions that we have are not beneficial. They're actually harmful. Uh, right. in, in, a, in a number of ways. Again, I think lying to kids about Santa Claus is one of those. Also, a lot of the gift giving that we participate in is is economically harmful. I know that sounds counterintuitive. Most people think that Christmas spending is good for the economy, but I have a whole chapter dedicated to that in the book, and I argue that it is not. It is not good for the economy. When you understand where a tradition comes from, it is easier to liberate yourself from it because you realize that, oh, well, the only reason that we do that is because so-and-so did this or so-and-so did that. But that's not really a good reason to continue to do that, right? right. The fact that, right? And so I can, I can liberate myself, I can free myself uh, from the tradition if it is, if I, if I realize where it came from, and especially if I realize it's not as ancient as I thought. People might, like, uh, I don't know, an easy example would be um, someone hates putting up a Christmas tree every year. I mean, if you love it, you love it, that's fine. And I, I actually like putting up a Christmas tree too. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> some, it's, some people don't, right? But some people, even though they don't like to do it because it's too much trouble or because they have allergies or whatever, might feel compelled to do so because they think, well, yeah, but people have been, you know, putting up Christmas trees at Christmas time for 2,000 years. I can't I can't break with tradition. Right? <laughs> uh, and then like once you realize that actually that tradition's only about 200 years old and it's pretty much all commercialized and it was sold to us by you know, it's kind of a bill of goods by, by capitalists, you can go, oh, well, I guess it's not that big of a deal if I don't put up a Christmas tree. And you can liberate yourself from that tradition if you so choose, right? So right. When, when Kant talks about uh, philosophy waking him from a dogmatic slumber, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's so many things that you believe because think that they're true or because, you, you know, you've always been taught that they're true or, you, you know, you think that there's some spurious argument or whatever uh, for them. And you may be held captive to these beliefs in a certain kind of way. Like because you believe these things, you have to behave a certain way or you have to do certain things. Right. And once you realize that, they're not true, you can liberate yourself from those things that are a hindrance to you. Right. And it could also be empowering in a way of dealing with issues such as anxiety or fear of yeah. death in that, oh, well, how, how can we go about to change these things? How can I have self-esteem? How can I find some sort of value from within rather than looking to the approval of others and having some sort of purpose that I can find in life that's meaningful for me? Maybe this can be something helpful as well. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like if you struggle with uh, life's meaning or whatever, I think uh, philosophy and in specific stoicism can help you realize that you can obtain objective meaning, not just subjective meaning, but objective meaning from some of life's goals, regardless of whether there's a a God or not. That's something I talk about in the last lecture of my Big Questions uh, philosophy course. Talk about Epicurus and his ridding us of the fear of death, right? Uh, Once you realize that the only thing to fear is pain, but death would be the absence of pain, there is nothing to fear. Uh, And so you can relieve anxiety about death in that way. Uh, by kind of truly understanding and appreciating that. so Right, and maybe just accepting life as a, as a process and seeing it as a bit of a change and that this is one part of life. As Life is like a journey. We, we hear this metaphor a lot within the Stoic writings. Yeah. There's another objection here. Some talk about philosophy as being pointless because all truth is relative, there's no truth, or that everything is opinion. What is your response to this? It's, for one thing, it's self-refuting. So this, uh, this year we had... Um, a little ceremony for some of our philosophy majors where philosophy majors get up and give presentations and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. We had uh, some of our other philosophers, as student philosophers or whatever, get up. And I'm not going to call out anybody names. One of our minors, I believe, got up and they were supposed to give a quote. And his quote was from Nietzsche. And I think it was a bit of an out of – I don't know Nietzsche all that well, but uh, kind of an out-of-context quote where he says something like – the quote is something along the lines of, there are no facts, there is only interpretation. To which I kind of under my, under my breath said, oh, is that a fact? 
the idea if, if someone ever ever says it true all truth is relative you can just well is that true because uh, if it is then it's false uh, and if it's false then it's false so clearly not all truth is relative so like look I, I'm willing to admit that there may not be as much truth as we think the right answer to a number of philosophical questions may simply be there is no fact of the matter the pile heap problem right? You have a, a pile of sand, you add one grain at, a, grain at a time, eventually it becomes a heap. At what point did the pile of sand become a heap of sand? Right. Um, right. And the answer is, there is no answer here. This is just convention. This is just a matter of description. You can choose to start describing it as a heap, you know, at, cer- at a certain point, but it's not like there's a definite time or grain of sand at which, it's, it, at which it becomes a heap. It's all just description. One of my favorite examples comes from Charles Sanders' purse, um, or is it Dewey? I think it's Purse, where he talks about a squirrel going around a tree, mm-hmm. and then you are going around the tree as well at the same speed as the squirrel, essentially, so that the back of the squirrel is always to you. So clearly you're going around the tree, but are you going around the squirrel? Since the squirrel's back is always to you, you never see its front, it seems that you're <laughs> not. And the answer is essentially, there is no right answer here. Are you going around it? It just depends on what you mean by the word around. Right. Do you mean you're to the northwest, south, and then east of it? Sure. Then you're going around it. Do you mean you're at the front side, back, and then the other side of it? Then no, you're not going around it. And that's all there is to say. There is no other fact of the matter about whether or not um, you're going you're going around it. You're going around the squirrel, right? There there may not be a fact of the matter about certain things, right? Like so, there may not be as much truth as we think. I'm also willing to admit we can be much more influenced by our culture and our upbringing and that kind of stuff to believe what we want to believe or even like to believe what we believe or even our uh, evaluation of what we kind of intuitively think is reasonable or not can be very influenced by obviously by culture and upbringing and that kind of stuff right and that's kind of like a postmodernist try to make a, a big point about this about the you know the cultural context of, of facts and language and that kind of stuff right uh, and so I'm willing to admit that there's obviously there's some of that, that that's going on but that doesn't that doesn't follow from that that there are no facts at all uh, it might follow from that that their facts are harder to determine uh, to figure out what the facts are uh, than we usually recognize. But that doesn't mean that there are no facts, that all facts are relative. There are objective measures of – or it doesn't mean that there aren't objective measures of what is reasonable, right? right. Like mod- modus ponens is like so, – like modus ponens is not a Western concept if P then Q, P therefore Q. That, that's, a, that's a mathematical truth. That, that's no more relative to culture than one plus one equals two is relative to culture. Mm-hmm. There are objective measures for these kinds of things, right? Good example, right? Some people will often pull this card when you're talking about like alternative medicine and that kind of stuff, right? Well, you know, we'll say, uh, you know, the acupuncture works and the reply will be actually, no, it doesn't. There has been controlled double-blinded studies that show that it is no more effective than a placebo. And if someone's reply is, yeah, but controlled studies, that's the Western way of testing mm. this, but it's, it's an Eastern medication, so you cannot test it in Western ways. And the reply is, no, there's nothing Western about a double-blinded controlled study. Look, if a, if a medication works, then you should be able to take two groups, give one group the medication, give the other group a placebo, and if the medication really works, the one that got the treatment should get better, and the one that didn't get the treatment shouldn't get better. There's nothing Western about that. There's nothing cultural about that. That's just what it means for right. a, a medication to work, right? And so when you admit that you know, acupuncture does not perform as well as a placebo in a double-blinded controlled trial, 
you have to admit that it doesn't work. There's nothing Western or Eastern or anything about it. Yeah, and, and even if we have some problems, like you said, about getting to the truth of things or some questions we might not be able to find the answer to, I, I don't think we should totally throw out philosophy or try searching for truth or admit that everything is relative. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It doesn't mean, certainly doesn't mean that it's relative. At, at worst, it means, well, then we'll never get at the fact of the matter, but there's still a fact of the matter. Right, and we can still try and work toward progress, work toward advancement here, yes. Yeah, absolutely, right? We might be surprised. One of the examples I like to give is that a lot of the things that we think are unknowable now may be in a generation or two or you know a decade or, or a century or something like that, may be common knowledge. I think a great example is if you were to think, say, 100 years ago and ask someone, do you think that we could ever know what was in the interior of the sun? You would think, well, how could you ever possibly know that? The sun is so hot, you could never get close enough to study it. You could never you know, dig in to drill in to get there and find out what's in there. It, it's impossible to know what's in the center of the sun. And we know exactly what's in the center of the sun now, right? There are other ways of discovering these kinds of things than what we might have realized 100 years ago. Same thing can be true for stuff that we think is unknowable now. We may not hmm. think there's any way to get at it now, but who knows what kinds of methods for uh, discovering the truth we may have in 100 years or something like that, right? So we definitely don't want to give up even if it seems that certain things, certain facts are uh, out of our reach. And we certainly shouldn't conclude from that that there is no fact of the matter at all. Right. So there's an inductive argument there that, oh, well, we've made progress in the past, so we're probably going to make progress now, which leads to maybe another objection from the naysayer. Oh, well, maybe what you say is truth now won't be that later. So we, we shouldn't go about and be so sure about what we're saying. Yeah, I think this is this also demonstrates a, a kind of misunderstanding. This is a common thing I talk about in, in, in some of my classes where we talk about science. People often say this about science. I don't want beliefs. I don't believe what science says now because look at what science said 100 years ago. And none of that is true anymore. No Nobody believes what science said 100 years ago. Uh, so in 100 more years, people aren't going to believe what our science is saying now. So why would you believe anything that science says now, right? Essentially, this demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of what science is and even generally in general what philosophy is and how knowledge and science progresses. It is not the case that we just reject everything that science said 100 years ago. And so we think everything they thought was wrong and then everything what we think is right. That's not how science works. Let me, let me, give, you a, let me give you an example uh, that I think makes the point quite nicely. Okay, so take uh, the geocentric view of the universe when we used to think that the Earth was the center of everything and everything revolved around the Earth, right? Copernicus suggested the heliocentric view where the sun was in the center and everything went around the sun, right? Turns out Copernicus technically was wrong, right? Because the sun is not the center of the universe, the sun is the center of the solar system, right? The sun is one of among billions of stars in the galaxy, and all those stars are re revolving around a center point in the galaxy. And then, of course, the, our galaxy, the Milky Way, is one among billions in the entire universe. And it turns out the universe has no center. So Copernicus was definitely wrong when he suggested that the sun was the center of the universe. Right. But he was a lot more right than the geocentrists were, right? His model, his, his theory was an improvement upon the previous view, the geocentric model. Once we improved upon that and realized that the sun was not the center, it's just you know one star in the Milky Way, that was an improvement, and then we thought the Milky Way was the center of the universe, right? And then we went on to discover that it's not the center either, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And our theory has continued to improve, and each one is better than the last one. Right. Right? So did we get things exactly right 100 years ago? No, definitely things were wrong. But 100 years ago, we were a lot more right than we were 100 years previous before that. Mm -hmm. And we were a lot more right than 100 years before that, right? 
our knowledge is continually progressing and getting closer and closer and closer to the truth, right? With that in mind, you can see the flaw in thinking, well, I'm not going to believe anything that science says now because it'll all just be overturned in 100 years. No, it's not going to be overturned. Copernicus wasn't overturned. It was improved upon. Right? We still think that the sun is the center of the solar system. I, actually, that's not even true because the sun wobbles a little bit because of the gravity. <laughs> yada, yada. But like, you, you, see, like, you see the point, right? Like, we continually improve the theory and improve the theory. What the history of science, the fact that we do not agree with everything they said that science said 100 years ago, is not a reason to think that what we have as science now is incorrect. That's a reason to think that what science tells us now isn't the whole picture. What science tells us now could still be improved upon and to expect it to be improved upon in the next hundred years. But it still is, more often than not, it is still largely right. It is still largely correct. It still gives us a very accurate model of the way the universe is, even though it's not completely complete and even though it can still be improved upon. Right. So there's gradual change over time. Gradual improvement over time, I would say. All right, and let's move on to another matter here. What kind of feedback have you received from students you've taught and the readers of your works? How has philosophy benefited others? I get feedback from my students and I get feedback from my customers at the great courses. So let me just talk about briefly about the great courses. So I've got two two courses with the great courses, the big questions of philosophy and then also an exploring metaphysics course. Mm-hmm. And I'll get emails from customers pretty often. What I got just the other day, put it up very, very nicely. I was very, very happy with his feedback. He basically said, you know, great course, really enjoyed it. I now better understand what I believe and why I believe it. That's perfect. That's what philosophy, you know, should do. I'm not interested per se in changing people's opinions, mold them into mine, but I am concerned with getting them to evaluate their own beliefs and understand why they believe what they do and to have good reasons for what they believe. And I, and that's the kind of feedback I usually get. As for my students, I think it's important to understand, like you asked me before about the practical point of philosophy, and I talked mm-hmm. a lot about understanding the meaning of life and, and evaluating, you know, having a, a leading the best kind of life. But it's also the case that philosophy has like a lot of like really practical, as in like employment and monetary benefits as well. What studying philosophy, like formally studying philosophy in a university setting, can do for you? is not only you examine those big questions, but it gives you a set of reasoning and reading skills and writing skills that are applicable across disciplines. Essentially, if you have a philosophy degree, you can go out and do almost anything you want. Now, something requires some very specific specialized training. Uh, Maybe you can't do that. But in general, most jobs that people will go out and get, the training you're going to receive, you're going to receive on the job anyway. What you need is the reading and reasoning skills to be able to figure that out, figure out what the the kind of skills that you're going to need once you're on the job, and then to keep up on those skills and be able to, I mean, even like, you know, work with other people and communicate with your coworkers and that kind of stuff. And nothing prepares you to do that better. This actually, like, I'm not just blowing smoke here. This actually comes out in the statistic. The idea of the unemployed philosophy major is a myth. It turns out the uh, the unemployment rate among philosophy majors is lower compared to many other traditionally employable majors. Uh, dentistry, pre-law, architecture, civil engineering, industrial design, exercise science, all of them have higher unemployment rates than philosophy. And it turns out that philosophy is the most lucrative among the humanities. If you're a humanities major, philosophy is the one that actually philosophers end up going off and making more than any other humanities majors. And they actually make more than other non-humanities majors that are typically thought to be really, really lucrative, like accounting, 
like architecture, like business administration. Philosophers make more than accountants. They make more than architects, right? So architect's a good one. Architect is like one of those things that's traditionally thought to be like if your son goes off to be an architect, you should be really, really proud. Architecture has a higher unemployment rate than philosophers and architects make less than philosophers. I think that speaks a lot to the kind of bad reputation that philosophy has as something that will actually lead to employment. What has happened to me, not to me specifically, but like to my students, they come back and say, I'm so glad that I also majored in philosophy because it turns out that I don't want to do what my primary major was. And if I had only studied that, I wouldn't be able to do anything else. But since I have a philosophy degree, I can kind of go out and do whatever I want. I can go, I can change careers now right. uh, because I can I pretty much figure out anything that I want. And so if you talk about like impact and like the feedback of, of, of students uh, after teaching them a philosophy, that's one big one is I'm really glad I studied it because it has prepared me for not only life, but uh, the workforce uh, better uh, than most other majors could. The other kind of feedback I get is often just one of my favorites is I, I do this in the pop culture class, which you took quite a few years ago mm-hmm. from me. And in that class, we talk about major religious and social issues, euthanasia, abortion, capital punishment, drug legalization, uh, existence of God, miracles, testimony, faith. You know, we talk about all that. And I've started, I don't think I did this when you were in the class, I've started doing a survey before and after the class mm-hmm. uh, to see what people think about these issues uh, before and to see what they think after. And you definitely have people changing their view, but inevitably almost everyone says yeah the reason i believe what i believe before was no good and now i do now i understand what i believe and why i believe it right right uh and so that's like that's the kind of feedback yeah that's our that's our goal sure yeah right having people think more critically about things being more self-reflective and questioning what's around them and having good reasons for what you believe instead of just believing whatever the hell you want because you want to (laughs) all right well any other closing thoughts or something to add here so we've talked about the effect of a lack of philosophy on society. I think that you actually see this in the Trump era, uh, what, what especially what people are calling the post-fact era, where this idea of relativism, that what is true is relative and you kind of believe what you want because you want to, and the reason that you can do that is because there really is no fact of the matter, it's all interpretation, mm-hmm. uh, I think has led to a lot of the problems we see in this kind of of this kind of post-fact era unfortunately those ideas i think have infected society to a large degree so that people like literally believe that they can just listen to any news they want to because they think that all news is just interpretation it's all just spin it's all just telling people what they want to hear and so they say well i'll just choose the one that tells me what i want to hear i think that if people approached politics with a philosophical mindset that a lot of those problems would be solved all right, very good. And where can people find you online? Best place you can find all of my works on academia.edu. Just uh, look for David Kyle Johnson on academia.edu, and you will find pretty much everything I've ever published there. You can find my courses for The Great Courses at thegreatcourses.com. They also have a, a new streaming app uh, that you can find my uh, my Big Questions of Philosophy courses on their streaming app. Uh, I also am currently working on a sci- science fiction and philosophy course uh, for them that should be out sometime next year. Uh, but that'll be available at, the, at the, uh, thegreatcourses.com. You can follow me on Facebook. It's just David Kyle Johnson. There I will post whenever new courses come out. I'll post that. When I have articles published, I'll post that. I have two blogs for psychology. Today, when I write new entries uh, for those blogs, I'll often I'll post them uh, on Facebook. I also have a, a Twitter handle, Kyle eight four two five, but I honestly don't use it that much. Um, so Facebook's a better place to to find me. All right, very good. Thanks for your time today.
All right. Thanks for having me on, Justin. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more content. Visit my website at justinvacula.com where you can find links to my social portals, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and see past Stoic Philosophy content on YouTube, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Consider donating if you support my work and would like to see more for this takes time, money, and effort to produce content. Have a great day.